0: Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted with the finest materials for irresistible comfort every single night. Now save up to $800 on select
1: adjustable mattress sets only at StearnsAndFoster.com. Lesser savings may apply.
3: The year is 1987, and this is a social commentary disguised as an action movie. I'll buy that for a dollar. (laughs) The movie RoboCop.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to
3: Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, and this is the show where we are trying to find the best films ever made, and when we get a hundred of them, we are sending them into outer space. We're right now in the middle of our hero series, where we are trying to figure out what makes a good hero. We've met bears, we've met aliens, we've met vampires, and this week, we're talking about Someone who is part man, part machine, and all cop. That's right. We are talking about RoboCop. But before we get into that, I just want to take a moment to talk a little bit about James Kahn, who passed away last week. Uh, Amy, James Kahn obviously has been in so many giant movies, classic films, films that we've done here on this show. Do you have a favorite James Kahn film?
2: You know, what's funny is the movie that is, of course, on my mind. Uh, about James Con's passing is one that we covered here on the show, a Brian song. Do you remember that one? I From do. Last summer, yeah, where he played a real life. He played the story of a real life football player who died of cancer, and it is like a. I think that is such an underrated film. That was one of my favorite movies that we discovered together because I had never seen that film before. About like friendship and death and sports and athleticism. And he gives, I think, a really good performance in there as a, as a guy who is cranky and rude and funny and complicated and, and I think a very human character.
3: You know, he's one of those actors who I think has popped up in so many different interesting types of films. Uh, great in Bottle Rocket, uh, Wes Anderson's first film. I, I love him in that. There's another great film that I don't think many people have seen, uh, but it's called Way of the Gun. Uh, which is a Christopher McQuarrie film uh, with Benicio del Toro and Ryan Philippe. Uh, great movie. Uh, you know, I know that you and I both also, in addition to Brian's song, uh, love Undercover Grandpa, you know, which is, I think, probably his best work. Uh, but the two movies that I often think about when I think about James Caan are two smaller films, and one I recently found in the last couple of years called Freebie and the Bean. Have you ever seen that?
2: You know, I've always heard I Need to See That, and I have never seen that.
3: Oh, Amy, you would love it. It's a super dark comedy with Alan Arkin and James Caan. Uh, It was recently re-released, so you can actually find it now on... Uh, YouTube and Apple TV, but for a long time, it was in the vault. I remember I ordered it from Amazon, and they had to actually press me a copy of it because they were doing this thing, Warner Brothers, for a while, where you could request your own film, and they would make it for you for like 25 bucks. And it's got some amazing uh, car chases through San Francisco. It's a really, really funny movie. And the other film that I feel like so many people talk about Uh, but also doesn't get as much respect as The Godfathers or any of the other films that we've talked about, is Thief, which is an amazing movie. Have you seen it? It's Michael Mann directed Thief, and it's about James Caan, who's a jewel thief, and he's about to settle down. It has a lot of similar vibes to Heat uh, a little bit. Uh, Have you ever seen it?
2: No, I haven't seen that one either.
3: Oh, my gosh. Great, great movie super dark, and it's just about a guy who's trying to get out of the business that he's in, and he can't get out. So those are my two uh, big recommendations to you. Thief and Freebie and the Bean, two lesser known James Caan films that are both equally great, uh, very kind of gritty, late 70s, early 80s films that uh, I think will jump up to your favorite list.
2: I love it. And You know, while we're listing off ones of his that we like, I also want to say that I rewatched *Misery* in the last year.
3: Oh my god! I forgot all about
2: that. My god, that film has aged like the finest Bordeaux. In a moment where you know we talk about like toxic fandom and stan culture, *Misery*. My goodness, well done, *Misery*. That movie is just amazing, and you really watch him go through his pains and agonies. Was he just an actor that directors like to torture?
3: I think that he was incredibly vulnerable, but also had this ability to be incredibly tough. Like, you could believe that he could just beat the shit out of you, but he also was someone who could get hurt. I don't know where that line is, but, you know, he was very scary as Sonny in The Godfather, but also probably the most relatable and friendly one of the brothers in that film.
2: I mean, what we do know from what his wife says in that wedding scene, that he's got the biggest cannoli.
3: Oh, Amy, that image. Although I kind of like James Caan with a cannoli penis. Uh, You know what?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, cannoli penis aside. I I think we can agree that he was a man who played complicated characters on screen, lived a complicated life off screen. Absolutely. You know, he left a mark. He left a big mark. He left a big mark. I have cursed his name a few times in the present years, but I have never cursed his performances. They are wonderful.
3: Oh, I love that. And you know what? Talking about performances, I think the one thing we could all agree on from last week's episode was that people love Wesley Snipes, but don't think that Blade belongs on the spaceship of 100 best films. And it's really interesting because the response to this film, unlike other films, is... This is one of my favorites, but it's not a good movie. And I think that you and I came to a similar conclusion. Like, it is a lot of fun. And that's an interesting place to be, to have a movie that really works, but not be a good movie. And I I was trying to think about other films like that, that aren't structured really well, but the performance just takes it to another level.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel that way about many things, many, many, many things. So I'm like, you are trash, but I do absolutely love this film.
3: Yeah, I think a lot of action movies kind of fall into this trap. James Bond movies, great villain, great Bond, great gadgets, not a great movie, but I love them. I'll watch them over and over again. Schwarzenegger movies fall into that same category. Seagal movies, all these movies that I loved growing up. It's It really is the star power. I think that Even Denzel Washington is another one of these actors who when not doing an Academy Award performance, you know, a big drama uh, just has a fun popcorn movie that comes out that you just are totally on board with. And it's interesting, these films that are cultural phenomenons, but maybe not the best film, but they have this lasting impact on our society.
2: Well, then what's interesting is when a film is anointed as that, as like fun trash that I happen to love, and then somehow gets anointed as more, as like, wait, maybe this actually was never fun trash. Maybe this is beautiful art all along. I mean, I think that that i was saying that because I'm thinking about the movie we're doing today. I'm thinking about the two movies we're going to do back-to-back because we're about to do something a little bit different Um, in our next two episodes. For the first time in Unspooled History. We're going to do two Paul Verhoeven movies back-to-back because I think that Paul Verhoeven movies have some of the most fun to talk about heroes and villains kind of simultaneously. We've been doing these hero movies. I've been really enjoying doing it, and it's been giving me this craving to do – Villains next. And I can't think of a better director to take us from hero to villain than Paul Verhoeven, a guy who does movies where people are framed as heroes who turn out to be villains. And he might never even tell you that. A movie where he really tests the audience's ability to see beyond the fun that he puts on screen, the explosions and the trash. And there's no better two films I can think of to do back-to-back than Robocop and Starship Troopers.
3: I mean, I'm loving digging into these films because Verhoeven is someone who I think not only touches on the zeitgeist of what is going on in our society, but can kind of see ahead. You know, both of these movies and and watching Robocop for the first time, I was blown away about how relevant it felt. But I think he also has done this multiple times where he's made these movies that are Movies that you want to talk about, you know, whether it is Basic Instinct or Showgirls or Total Recall, there's something that you want to take away from each of these films, something that gets you in a in a visceral way. I, I'm actually really excited because there's been a lot of talk about him doing the next Conan movie. Uh, we talked about Conan on the show here, and he's been attached to the legend of Conan uh, and... To see the two of them attack that franchise now, I think would be kind of amazing.
2: I mean, I feel like the only safe bet you could make is that there will be something going on underneath Conan's muscles, maybe, because that's how he works.
3: That is how he works. (laughs) It truly is. Uh, All right. So without any further ado, Amy. Dead or alive. Let's unspool it. The year is 1987. The Simpsons first appear in a short clip on The Tracy Ullman Show. Reagan insists that Mr. Gorbachev tear down that wall. Aretha Franklin is inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Prozac makes its debut in the U.S. And the hot films of the year are Raising Arizona, The Princess Bride, Fatal Attraction, and today's film, RoboCop. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? And what was on the radio?
2: RoboCop. It is written by Edward Neumeier and Michael Miner, and it is the American film debut by Dutch director Paul Verhoeven. Robocop is the story of the city of Detroit in a not-so-far-off America where corporations control everything, including the police force. But instead of crime going down, crime seems to be doing better than ever. So to protect their big bosses' dreams of building Delta City, a clean and quiet safe harbor for the rich, two corporate suits face off over who can build the better robot cop. Will it be Dick Jones, played by Ronnie Cox, who is all up on making this egg-shaped, cowboy-legged robot monster called the ED-209? Or, when that misfires, will his younger rival Bob Morton take over? Bob Morton, played by Miguel Ferrara, who seizes this chance to build a prototype robot from the body of a dead human policeman named Alex Murphy. Alex Murphy is, of course, the legendary Peter Weller, but there is something in RoboCop's wiring that remembers the faces of the goon squad who killed him. Headed, of course, by Kirkwood Smith as the sneering, gum chewing, blood spitting Clarence Bodiger. Take a listen.
0: We get the best of both worlds, the fastest reflexes modern technology has to offer onboard computer assisted memory and a lifetime of on the street law enforcement programming. It is my great pleasure to present to you Robocop. He's really good.
1: He's not a guy, he's a machine.
0: Old Detroit has a cancer. <laughs> cancer is crime. Let the woman go, you are under arrest. You, you better back up, pal! Your move, <laughs> creep. <laughs>
2: RoboCop opened in theaters on July 17th, 1987, and hit number one. Although its competition was not that mighty, it was a reissue of Disney's Snow White and the debut of Jaws for the Revenge, a sequel that I deeply enjoy because it is the first Jaws that I ever saw. Uh, RoboCop surprised audiences and critics who both liked it a lot. Although with satire that I would call as slippery as Verhoeven's, you really have to wonder if everybody who liked the film thought they were watching the exact same film. Were they watching the shoot-em-up action film, or were they watching the bleak tragicomedy about corporate profiteering? Uh, over the years, RoboCop has gone on to both lower in the audience's estimation through its various sequels and cartoon spin-offs and TV shows, and raise in esteem, as the original film seems to be more and more timely every year. You might say that in the RoboCop universe, this first film has one thing in common with the number one song on the charts that weekend, a true banger by heart which is that it stands very much alone. If I could sing that song at karaoke, I would, I would die and become a RoboCop. All I Wait, want to do is to sing that song because I'm a terrible singer.
3: Oh, come on. Oh, you could no. just do what everybody else does. Pick your one song, get really good at it. I know a guy who hired a singing coach to get his one karaoke song ready to go. So whenever there was karaoke, he would knock it out of the park. And I think you should do the same thing. Actually, don't do it. I'll get that for you as a birthday gift.
2: Uh it's gonna take a long time. A very right. long time. I'm, I'm ready very for it. Toned down.
3: All right. <laughs> you know what's interesting about Robocop is it comes out at this point where sci-fi movies are super popular. You have like Aliens in '86, The Terminator in '84, Predator in '87, Cocoon, Alien Nation, you know, even Spaceballs. It's this time where I think the public was ready for a movie like this. And in a weird way, you put this in the hands of another director and you just get a straight shoot 'em em up uh, a robot cop movie, right? That's what you get. You get TJ Laser, which is the uh, TV show that uh, Peter Weller's son is watching at home all the time. And that movie probably would have been as successful as Robocop. But when you have Verhoeven behind it, what you get is this social commentary, this movie that's so much bigger than a lot of those forgettable sci-fi films because it is doing the thing that you want all great sci-fi to do, which is to warn us or give us a little bit of social commentary. Tell us what is in store for us. And like I said to you in the beginning of this episode, watching this for the first time, I thought this movie could come out this year and feel just as timely it really is in many ways a wonderful look at the future because it's so kind of bleak uh, and i think he sets the tone right away with the opening with these newscasters
0: big is back because bigger is better Six thousand sux an american tradition good evening i'm jess perkins with casey wong top story santa barbara 10,000 acres of wooded residential land were scorched in an instant when a laser cannon aboard the Strategic Defense Peace Platform misfired today during routine startup tests. Casey?
1: Yes, it was a day of mourning for the families of 113 people known dead at this hour, among them two former United
3: States presidents who had retired in the Santa Barbara area. A day of mourning for a country.
2: Yeah, I mean, those news newscasters make it clear that he is here to talk about a world. You know, this isn't about one guy or even one city. This is about, like, society at large, every aspect of it. What's on TV, who's telling us the news, what commercials are being sold, what people are laughing at. It is about where humanity is at this point. And I will say the original script places RoboCop in 2043. And Verhoeven and the screenwriters were like, you know what, we actually don't even need that. Let's just make it anytime any place, this is coming and we don't even need to pin it to a year because all of these seeds we see kind of coming up, you know, coming up in the fermentation of like where our country is going. To which I want to say, there's one really interesting distinction between like this film and um, Starship Troopers that we're going to do next, which is in this film, Verhoeven kind of found his voice in America by adapting to a script that actually really was already super satirical, the one written by Edward Newmeyer and Michael Miner. I want to actually, if you don't mind, I'd love to give you a little bit of background on them because they are fascinating. Yeah. So Edward Neumeyer, I saw with him first because he's the one who originally had the idea. Like in 1981, he's this guy who's working on lots. He's like a script analyst, you know, so he reads scripts. He's like, that's good, that's bad, I don't know, we'll see. And he's frustrated. He wants to be more than that. And one night when he gets off work late, he walks by the set of a movie that's being filmed. And that movie is Blade Runner, you know, really launching us into like this kind of modern like technology that we're going to be talking about the sci-fi. And so he's on the set of Blade Runner and he's like, you know, the robots in this movie don't look like robots. And he was like thinking about it and he was looking at the robot cars and he kind of just got this flash in his head all at once about a character named Robocop. He was like, that's my name. That's my title. I don't know what it is, but I know that this is a story I want to tell. And he's a really interesting guy. Like he's, his parents are journalists. He's always been like interested in like capitalism. He's a guy who used to be out in the streets protesting the Vietnam War. He got arrested. So he comes to this idea of Robocop with his own Political ideas. And then as he's rising in the ranks in the studio, he still won't let this go. Like, he's like, I might be like a producer, I might be an executive, but I have this script I want to do. And then one day, he meets a guy named Michael Minor. Now, Michael Minor, he comes from a totally different background. Like, he was doing music videos, like heavy metal music videos for bands like Night Ranger and stuff. And, um, they meet each other when, like, he, when uh, Ed sees one of Michael's student films. And now Michael's background is, like, he is, like, hyper, hyper, hyper political. Like, he was super mad at consumerism. He was really mad at economics. Like, he calls Milton Friedman the economist who, like, really came up with this idea of, like, free market capitalism. Like, one of the most evil people who's ever backed, like, the earth. So he had this, like, burning desire to make a film all about that, about his anger at Reagan for shutting down colleges, for privatizing everything. He um, was just horrified by, like, CIA-backed assassinations He's, like, burning, and he's like, well, Michael, I have this idea for a film I want to make, and it's called Supercop. And so they were like, Robocop and Super Cop, we have to be able to smash our ideas together. And so that's really what they did. They smashed it together. They sold the script to a producer, John Davidson, and then they had to go find a director for this movie that they really wanted to be about, how, like, corporate America killed Everything, how corporate America specifically killed Detroit, the auto industry. That's why they're setting it there, where they're letting the city crumble. And so this script gets brought to Verhoeven, who was thinking, I'm kind of restless in Holland. I need to be somewhere else making bigger things. But when he reads the script for the first time, he doesn't get it at all. He thinks it's exactly the film you're describing. He thinks it's like some childish, silly thing. He doesn't know what Reaganomics really are. So he is not understanding any of that. He reads like a couple of pages and he puts it down and his wife picks it up and she reads it. And she's like, this is so much deeper than you think it is. You have to read this again. And Verhoeven was like, I don't even read English that well. This is so annoying. He had to read the script with the dictionary because he was so confused by everything. Like he he was so unfamiliar with American culture that when he read the script, he was like, why do black characters call other people brother when they're not related? And he was just stymied by everything. So when he made this film, he had ideas in it about like, he thought America was kind of goofy and ultra violent and that people here loved big cars. He thought that they were kind of backwards and strange. But he described himself and he made the film as like 47 years old Dutch. And 10 months year, ten months old American. That's how new he felt to understanding America. So in a way, it's like this great mashup of people who had a lot to say about America and a director who was curious but knew he didn't know anything. And that hunger to learn more and to, and to capture something, like, fueled his energy. And then when he goes into Starship Troopers, he's like, I've got this. I am mad. I have a lot of things to say. You know, but that's, that's kind of—we're seeing this arc of Verhoeven become Verhoeven when he gets this script.
3: Well, you were talking about how he was looking at America as being kind of silly and big. And and I think one of the things that he really brought to this film was the gore, right? The idea of of making the violence this ultra-violence. You know, you, you read a lot of articles about it, and all Verhoeven wanted was, like, more and more squibs, more and more blood. Is there anything about him that you know... From his upbringing, that maybe makes him lean in that direction, this idea of adapting to the ultra violence.
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, Verhoeven, like, he is born, if we jump all the way back to the beginning, this is a guy who's born in 1938. World War II is on. He's in Amsterdam. He's like growing up in Amsterdam during the era of Van Frank. And the way that he grew up there in a country that was just at war, like he would wake up as a child and the entire sky would just be bright red. Like he'd be walking on the sidewalks and he would stumble across dead soldiers from all sides, dead German soldiers. Some of them would still be in their planes. And he said the only way he could grapple with it is he started to think that it was like he said, quote, it was like watching the cinema because there was just so much violence around him all the time. And he was, you know, beaten up. A lot, like when he was six years old, um, some Dutch Nazi sympathizers, you know, kind of proud boys of, of Holland, they like threw him against the wall. They pointed a gun at him. They started laughing at this gun. And like, I think you see that in this movie, because what happens throughout it is like people whip out guns. People are getting hurt. And what you hear that what he makes a point of putting in is like laughter, that there's violence happening in this universe to people And they're just cackling. I mean, I think one of the best examples of it is like when Murphy gets murdered here, Murphy's like being shot to pieces, you know, hands falling off, legs falling off, arms. And all of the guys who are watching this bloodshed are cracking up. Like it's the funniest joke they've ever heard.
0: You probably don't think I'm a very nice guy,
3: (laughs) do you? Buddy, I think you're slime. (laughs) (laughs) See, I got this problem. Cops don't like me,
0: so I don't like
1: cops.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, give the man a hand. He's
0: all yours.
3: So that laughter that you're talking about there, that wasn't really all in the theatrical cut. A lot of that stuff was cut out and restored in the director's cut. And it's really interesting to me because the director's cut is probably what most people have seen. Uh, I don't think you can even go back to the old version of the film anymore. And it is incredibly violent. But when I was looking at the comparing and contrasting of the scenes, the laughter, it was added back in. And I think that that makes these scenes that much more scary, that much more intense and careless, right? There is something incredibly maniacal about that. I think back to when we were talking about the Clockwork Orange, that idea of enjoying the violence is something that is, I think as a viewer, more upsetting than any violence that you're seeing on screen because they have no care, right? It's done in this way where It is joyful. And you see that throughout the entire movie with these villains, whether it's blowing up buildings or shooting, you know, Murphy's hand and arm off, you know, watching him, you know, wiggle and die. Like, they love it. These are people that are having fun, even in the RoboCop documentary, RoboDoc, which is great, where they've interviewed everybody who has been involved in all three of the original films. This idea that this gang that we see in the film, they love what they do. Like, they like creating chaos. And you get that from the moment that you see them.
2: I love that comparison you just made to Clockwork Orange. I think that's absolutely dead on. I love that. Yeah, you're like, these are people who have been raised without, like, a moral conscience, without a moral soul. You know, they are just, they, like, the sense of humor of this society seems to be, like, completely broken
3: Everybody who is threatened is weaker in this movie, whether it's the uh, college student who's working at the gas station or the woman who is not, I'm not going to say she's old, but she's not young, who works at the convenience store. Like, they are constantly picking on weaker people who are defenseless and enjoying it. No one ever steps to them, right? So even seeing that, like, these are all choices. Every character is a bully, a straight-up bully. And so when you see the entrance of RoboCop, it's a little bit of a relief because finally someone can take on these monsters.
2: Well, yeah, and this idea of, like, of laughter was so central to Verhoeven himself because to him, like, he wanted his violence to be drawn on so long that the audience would start to laugh because they realized he like he called he called like shooting b- beyond reason uh, his version of like a modern times Charlie Chaplin kind of joke. Like specifically, like say in that beginning scene, right? Where like right. where um the ED 209 is in the office and he just goes nuts. He's like holding up the sky, they're kind of joking around. The guy's supposed to drop the gun, but the ED doesn't see him drop the gun, and then he just like massacres the dude and it goes on forever, like this.
0: Please put down your weapon. You have 20 seconds to comply.
2: I think you'd better do what he says, Mr. Kenny.
0: You now have 15 seconds to comply. You are in direct That's violation of title Code one thirteen Section 9. You now have 5 seconds to comply. Hey,
2: To, to Verhoeven, the length of that was so important because like, if he shoots them a couple times, you're like, whoa that's shocking and kind of disturbing. But if he keeps shooting him, it transcends the shock value and it transcends like the horror or even the kind of like fist bump. Whoa, that was cool. You see that guy get it? That was funny. It transcends it and it just becomes like surreal and absurdist and what is happening? And you start to just like question what is going on in this film. And it's the kind of thing that that cracks it open to help you see the satire. And so when the MPAA cut that laughter, cut cut the shooting down, he was like, you're killing the joke of it, and in a way you're making a darker, worse, more grim and morbid film. It's like you're actually well, yeah. making the violence worse by keeping it short.
3: Well, I think that that's a lot of the arguments about the successive RoboCop films, that they are mean, they are violent, they, they aren't saying anything. They just are having a protagonist who is this, you know, ultimate fighting machine. But that moment that you talk about here where the first police robot that's introduced by Dick Jones goes haywire is where the whole movie turns because we're introduced to a crime ridden city, a beaten down police force. We've already seen a Detroit like this and Beverly Hills cop. I mean, obviously it's gone down a little bit, but you know, it's, there's nothing at this point that leads us to believe anything out of the ordinary is going to happen. And when that robot Malfunctions. And you have this moment where they're trying to reason with a machine and it doesn't happen. So it even becomes more comical. Like there's there's no reasoning with a machine. The machine is going to just do what it is told or programmed to do. And that sequence, once you see that and you see people at the table, some people are like, oh my God, oh, oh my god, that, that person's dead. Yeah. And then the other the people CEO, are like pushing
2: him, like, get away from me.
3: Yeah. And then you see the CEO. Just like, all right, well, that didn't go well. We need to do something a little bit different. Like, so unfazed. That's where the movie takes this turn. You're like, oh, you start to lean in. I do think the beauty of this movie is that if you aren't paying attention, you're missing some of the jokes because it's not calling it out right it's all yeah. very subtle all the jokes are subtle like Rubo whether it is, does not
2: do one-liners
3: like no no uh-huh. i mean like to me the the jokes are very simple like the peace cannon killing two presidents who you know uh were in their you know in their uh homes in santa barbara or the fact that when this woman who is almost raped by these two men in the middle of the street, she runs to RoboCop to embrace him and say like, oh my God, thank you, you saved me. And he's like, you've been in a trauma. I will call a rape crisis hotline for you. Like so cold, so matter of fact. Like to me, those are all the jokes. And it's actually, I wonder in a way.
2: Wait, that's interesting. It's like she's going to him for that hero hug.
3: Yeah. And he can't do it. He can't embrace. I mean, RoboCop himself is equally a, a brute. Like, when he comes into that convenience store to save the day, like we had this section in the film, once the RoboCop is completed, and we know we skipped over some plot points here, but once RoboCop is on the force, he has his... Um, I thought of it very much like the Superman moment, where Superman finally starts to save people around the city. We see a little montage of Superman, you know, getting a cat down from a tree and stopping a, a robber on the side of a building. So we have Robocop going throughout all the city, but every time he goes to a certain place, you know, he picks up this uh, guy robbing a convenience store, throws him through a freezer, and he was like, thank you, and leaves. Like, like he's not (laughs) providing any solace. Like, he is just equally... A brute, but <laughs> yet he's on talk the right to kids. side.
2: Yeah, they ask him to talk to kids. Like, what do you have to say to kids? And he's like, don't do crimes. Like, yeah. like if you do crimes, I'll kill you. you yeah, know, there, yeah he's it, not... there is
3: something lovable about his frame, but nothing lovable about his personality.
2: You're right. There is nothing lovable about his personality. Like, you can empathize with bits of him that you get to know from living inside his brain. But if you're a person on the street of Detroit, He's like, he does good things, but you don't love him. I didn't think of that parallel between like, in Superman, you have him saving the cat from the tree. And then you realize like when the little girl whose cat he saves goes inside and tells her mom, like Superman just saved my cat. Her mom is like, you're a liar and beats up this girl. And so it sours that hopeful note. Right Here, I guess there is a bit of that. Like I am a girl who's just been traumatized. I have nobody to turn to. I'm very alone in the street. And this guy's like, You have suffered an emotional shock. I will notify a rape crisis center. Goodbye. Like, that's it. Yeah. He doesn't even say goodbye. He just walks away.
3: And yet this is the better version of the ED-209 who has no personality. I mean, RoboCop has a face and maybe that makes him more personable, but he is equally as violent as the 209. Now, I think the 209 has some problems. I mean, clearly uh, it malfunctions.
2: Yeah. You know, there's actually an interesting reason why it malfunctions. Um, That's not clear at all from from what you see on screen. In the script, they're very uh, specific that the reason why the ED-209 malfunctions is because they're holding this trial for him in very, very plush offices. And the carpet of the office floor is so thick for these rich guys that when one businessman drops his gun. The robot doesn't hear the gun drop because it's expecting to hear a louder clang. And the oh. carpet is so soft and luxurious that that is why he winds up getting shot. The movie, I think, bungles this point, maybe on purpose, where you do hear the gun drop anyways, because it's like they they let the audience right. know that it dropped. They add that sound effect. But once you add that sound effect, then it's kind of like, oh, he just malfunctions. Like, you don't really understand. You're just like, oh, he's just purely faulty. And so I don't know which is better. In a way, I I like the joke about the carpet, but I guess it's sort of like, I guess we have to move on. We have to move on. Do we have time for that? All we know is he doesn't work. You can't trust him.
3: I actually think the social commentary here is better if the ED-209 malfunctions and it has nothing to do with the carpet because... If it just malfunctions and Dick Jones doesn't care about it malfunctioning, he just wants it on the streets so he can eventually sell it to the military. Like his goal is making money, not about it working correctly, not about it doing its job. It's just, can I get it out on the street so then I can sell it and make a shitload of money? Like he never stops and hesitates that this is a bad idea. Even when the ED-209 is like semi-retired, His goal is, I need to get that back out there. Like, yes, RoboCop is fine, but I'm not making money with RoboCop. I got to make it with this robot. And that, to me, is much more the backbone of the movie. The movie has no care or consequence for people. People are being used purely to make money. That gentleman dies in the boardroom. No one cares. Uh, We have Peter Weller getting brutally killed. And because... You know, he is a cop. They're able to figure out a way where they could just take his body and implant it in this robot. And, you know, they are literally torturing him for the greater good of this corporate, you know, entity. And that's this whole movie is really about the dangers of corporatization. All right. It's like we shouldn't let our police force be Corporatize. I mean, the, the fourth directive of RoboCop is, you know, to serve, protect, but yet never arrest anyone who he works for. So he could never take down, uh, you know, he could never take down corruption because it would always stop at one level. It, it really is for the people outside the glass building, not the people inside the glass building.
2: You know, you're exactly right, because you're right. Like the thing we never hear Dick Jones say when that dude gets murdered in the boardroom is... Oh, I have to fix this so it doesn't do that again. That does not come up. And in fact, you're right, later on he says, I'll sell it to the military and then I'll get really rich because when it breaks down, I'll be able to sell them parts. It's like he's looking forward to its planned obsolescence to make more money.
0: I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone, Paul Giamatti, and America Ferreira. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, Listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now.
3: Everybody in this movie is constantly selling someone out to survive or make money, you know, and and that is across the board. There are no allegiances here. It's only these temporary alliances to get wealthier. And if you get in someone's way, you will be killed.
2: Well, and I love how the film sets up this whole backbone so neatly and with so much energy, which is we learn basically the entire corporate structure of what's happening on uh, at OCP Industries in this really, really stylish single take shot that, that uh, the cinematographer, Joss Vacano, who did Das Boot, a movie we've been told to see, to see a good submarine movie, that he put together. We have this long tracking shot, like going like up the elevator, through the boardroom, walking around the boardroom, listening to all of these different people talk. And you don't totally know who they are yet. So you're just kind of catching up and listening. But once you see the film the, the, the first time, then you're like, I know exactly what's going on. He's giving you all of this information in such a vigorous way.
0: You never do anything ahead of schedule. It's Jones. He's got the 209 series online and now he wants to show off.
1: Oh, that's a, that's a tough break. Bob. What, what? What? Well, ED-209 ran into a series delays and cost overruns. The old man ordered a backup plan. Have a nice Probably day. just to light a fire under Jones's ass. Yeah. Oh, Bob here gets the assignment. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody in security concepts takes this
0: it seriously. It's a better plan. Fucking Jones. I'd go straight to the old man if I could. Don't mess with Jones, man. He'll make sushi out of you. <sighs> yeah. You better be careful, man. I hear Jones is a real shark. Who asked you to Bob? What about this police thing? What's the problem? Their union's been bitching ever since we took over. You know the usual nonsense. We'll turn things around. Hmm. Good, very good. Let's get started.
2: And he does the exact same thing with the cops. Both the cops and the board members get this exact same kind of introduction. One camera walking through, hearing all these different overlapping conversations. And in this one take, letting you know exactly all the information you need to have at your fingertips about this whole setup. any
3: word on Fredrickson? I still listening to him, it's
0: critical. White must be going out of her mind. Now. Murphy, huh? Yeah, that's me, man. Hi. Right. What brings you to this little paradise? It's me, man. I think OCP's doing a lot of new guys up here. Omni consumer products. What
3: a bunch of morons. They're gonna manage this department right into the ground. Where are you from? Petro South. Welcome to hell.
0: Perfect.
3: Yo, know, got 10 guys loose over on the east side.
0: You try to get back up when you're in a jam. <laughs>
3: yeah, try to get a medevac after you've been jammed. Well, I'll tell you what we should do.
0: We should strike. Fuck them.
2: I mean, so for that, we know that the cops are thinking about going on strike, that they're sick of being murdered on the streets, that there's like... Kind of a, a cynicism that's like really, really setting into the force, you know. And this is a force that's like owned by a corporation, and they're being like specifically murdered by this Clarence Boddicker, who's going around killing people. The actual opening scene in the script was a little bit different. You know how like in the opening of this, we keep hearing about this massacre that just happened, and like Frank, this police officer who's like dying, and they take his nameplate off the link, the locker, that whole subplot. This movie used to open with just watching. Clarence, kill everybody. Like seeing that murder that we keep hearing about getting described off place. Where Emile, you know, Emile played by Paul McCrane, who I just Mm -hmm. I love his little face in this movie so much. Where Emile's carrying around spray paint so that every time they kill a policeman, he tags the number of policemen it is underneath it. So he's like 28, 29, 30, spray painting it so that the cops know that they know that they know that they're killing everybody and taking care of like they're they're treating it like a hunt. And I wonder, like Removing this whole murder of Frank from the beginning, this whole like blowout action sequence of four cops getting killed. What do you think the pros and cons are of that? Because I was kind of going back and forth. Like I could see the argument for having this movie start not with kind of, you know, these newscasters, but starting with like, whoa, this is how bad Detroit is. But in removing that, I feel like he's, I feel like Verhoeven is kind of consciously removing Maybe an extra piece of empathy for the police force by not starting with this murder? I don't know. By not putting them like as the victims from the beginning? Or what do you think is going on?
3: I think you need to start this movie on the news show because it lets you into the world. This movie is satirizing corporate culture, 80s greed. We're talking about Reaganomics. We're talking about the Star Wars system, which was a missile program that Reagan had decided to put up there in case we were attacked by Russia, right? There there are these...
2: And named it Star Wars because he was like, you can't vote against Star Wars. Everybody 100%. loves Star
3: Wars. And I think that that is what is on display. It's not about cops being killed by villains. It is about cops being pawns of this corporate culture right instead of trading stocks and bonds like i i see a lot of similarity in american psycho and this right this idea of what does corporate greed do on a heightened level right in, in american psycho it's you take that you know kill or be killed uh you know take down the enemy and you make it literal you i'm gonna kill people I'm, i have all the power here It is about a society that is happily going from a murder into a funny thing about a dog. And then back again, the smiles never leave their face. News is like entertainment. Then you cut into a show that is so vacuous that is just girls in bikinis and this man going, I'll buy that for it. Like everything about this society is broken and it, TV you know,
2: so misogynist. It's so, uh, I. But just it's hate dumb. It. It's like, it's, you know. It's, 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 uh, yeah.
3: We've seen it. We've seen it so many times. It's society that gets so caught up in the dumbest shit. Like whether it's like in the Lego Movie, like where are my pants, right? You know, and then yeah. you see it in Idiocracy, like. I think in a way, if we step back from our television and looked at what we actually are watching, we watch shows like Wipeout, where people are just running across a field getting like hit with giant rubber balls. You know, it's like like that is a part of our culture. Like those, you know, jackass. I love jackass. But if you were to just take a step back and examine us. That's probably what it looks like to Paul Verhoeven. Yeah,
2: for sure. But at least like at least the at least the dumb show and idiocracy is like what ow my balls where it's like people getting hurt. This one is just like some creep being mean to ladies who are just being nice to him over and over again. You made me a cake. I'm smushed it in your boobs. You give me a girl. How about a threesome? And and they're just like so happy about it. Oh, although I did shiver at that line uh, right here in this clip.
0: have you both. Ah! Sure, we've <laughs> had our shots. <laughs> I'd buy that for a dollar.
1: <laughs> <sighs>
2: <sighs> oh yeah. had our shots. Oh man, it's like they predicted Tinder during I the pandemic. I know
3: and I saw that, <laughs> but I do. But I do think that there is an element here that feels like a sketch movie. You know, whether yeah. it's the cars, like that that sequence where Godzilla is going through. Uh, you know, this kind of uh, model version of New York City. It's like bigger is always better. Or, you know, the Battleship game. It's like nuke them before they nuke you. You know, we are looking at it through the lens of screens. Even the movie positions us that way. Like we look through RoboCop's lens a majority of the time and and we see how he's treated more like an object than a person, like whether it's kissing his visor, or you know, it's like I guess there's an element of what it feels like to be a dog, right? Like they, you know, it we're a lot of things are coming at us, and uh, even even when they kill Bob Morton, how do they do it? Well, Ronnie Cox makes a video and kills him from a distance, right? Like, uh, you know, the everything is done in this very uh removed ways, which I do think makes the death of Peter Weller even more shocking because that is, we're watching this man be dismembered by villains. And then like five minutes later, we watch him be dismembered by scientists where they go, oh, we can save his arm. No, cut it off. We want it to be fully robotic. And it's like, oh my God. Like, So what's the difference between Kurtwood Smith shooting off his arm and Bob Morton's science team cutting off his arm?
0: He's on. What's the story? We were able to save the left arm. What? I thought we agreed on total body prosthesis. Now lose the arm, okay?
1: Jesus, Morton. Can can, can you understand what I'm saying? Doesn't matter. We're going to blank his memory
0: anyway. Well, I think we should lose the arm. What, What do you think, Johnson?
1: Well, he signed the release forms when he joined the force. He's legally dead. We can do pretty much what we want to. Lose the arm.
0: Shut him down. Prep him for surgery.
3: So... The long-winded answer to your question is that's why I think we have to open up through the lens of the news, through the lens of a camera because this movie is treating everything like television. There is no weight to real human life. And that the only person that we really have that connection to is Peter Weller as Murphy because he is he's our only bit of humanity in this entire film.
2: No, you're exactly right. And I want to talk a second about like everything that Peter Weller does in the few minutes we get to see him as Murphy because we don't get a lot of time with Murphy. You know, what, what do we know about Murphy? He's got some great floppy hair. We know he's got a bit of a personality. Like he's not a total zero, right? He's not like, I'm a good guy. I'm nice and bland. He's a little bit of a he's a little bit not a jerk in the slightest, but he's a little bit like I'll drive okay, you can drive. You know, he's got a sense of humor. There's something in Peter Weller's face where he looks like a little soft, a little funny, a little serious. Well, he's not
3: Schwarzenegger, right? No, he's he's not. not. He's not built up. He's not a hero. Even when he goes in to take down the villains, like he's doing his job, but he's not a Superman, right? Like in any way, you see him being scared. You see him wanting to mastered this gun twirl for his son because his th- son thinks it's cool, not because he thinks it's cool to twirl his gun. You know, and I think when he's giving his partner that, like, kind of giving her shit like, oh, I, I'm, I'm breaking a new partner. It's not because, yeah. it, it's not ego. It's just, he's just having fun. Like, he's having, there's something that he is, he's a real, he is humanity. We're seeing it through his eyes.
2: Yeah, I mean, if he's humanity, if he and Lewis are humanity which I think they're the closest thing we have, then humanity is brave and a little foolhardy and playful and, you know, can crack a joke here and there and has affection. Like, she has deep affection for him. Lewis, I think, is, like, the one character who gets to live long enough to care about anybody in this movie, to care specifically about him, even though he can't care back, even though there's nothing to care back to once he becomes, like, RoboCop. But that's... They're, like... It's like we're underwater. We're like we're under some sort of frozen Antarctic sea. And they're like the one little crack of oxygen in this world, right? Right. Like he has to make you care about this floppy-haired blonde guy in the few minutes we get with him before we never see that guy again. And you have to care about that guy just enough that it will carry you through all of these sequels that wind up getting made.
3: Well, let's not go so far to say that you actually give a shit about him in the sequels. I think as the sequels go on... Uh, cause I have seen some of those sequels or pieces of them. Uh, he is just a robo cop, right? Like he, like you're losing this humanity. What I think I really like about this is when you see his flashbacks, his wife's like, come in here right now. And he, he actually has a good relationship with her. She's like, I love you, you know? Um, and his kid, Loves him like he's he's a present father. He's taking pictures with the kid. Like there's something about him, and we we're seeing that through uh, these little snippets. Uh, but I also think that humanity that is brought to the character, and it's I can't imagine how he did it. Is all through that little bit of skin that we see from Peter Weller on screen. Like Peter Weller's face is obscured. His nose is obscured. He is. You know, it's not just a visor. It's like we are seeing not even his full chin. We're just seeing a little bit above his chin and below his nose. But there is something that he does that brings humanity to this robot. And it's not just that it's a humanoid looking robot. I think the work that he does as a robot, the way he walks, leading with his chest, the way he turns, like the just from an acting standpoint. The the body work that he's doing, the, the, I guess you could call it like mask work, is incredibly compelling because you forget that there's a human in there. It really does feel like you are watching a robot. It doesn't feel janky at all. The costume is amazing. But he is still able to eke out a little bit of humanity. And I don't know if it's because he's a smaller guy and he isn't a tough guy like Schwarzenegger. You know, he... He is an attractive man, but he's not like a. Um, I don't think he has a tough face, right? I think a lot of our action starts at this point had a tough face. I think it's something that's similar to why we love Sigourney Weaver so much in Alien. She's tough as shit, but she also has something about her personality that is relatable, like you, like that feels like there is something there.
2: I mean, I wonder if really the key of why. We are able to care about this character is just because we've seen him go through so much pain, you know, to like see him go through that massacre, which is so terrible, you know, And the way that like and and yeah, like you mentioned, the way that Weller even plays it, the way he's like. Shaking and vibrating in the way they—I I, mean—they did use a dummy for some of that explosive stuff, but they also took pains to make sure that even the dummy was kind of quaking like a real human, in a way that you don't see on screen that much because it's so awful. Like we see, you know, we see people get like mowed down left and right by guns, but it is very uncommon for a director to show them, them like quivering in pain. Yeah, it's like it's like the pain is too much for us. The death is fine, but pain is too much. And the pain that we see in his face, I mean, to Verhoeven, it was, like, really clear what he was trying to do. Like, he was specifically insisted that we were watching a crucifixion scene, that he thought that RoboCop was the American Jesus, and that if we don't have this crucifixion of him, we can't have the resurrection of him. Mm-hmm. And he really believed in this idea that, like, RoboCop could, is, is the kind of resurrection hero that Americans want. Like, if you notice in the end when he's having that showdown with Clarence and they're in kind of, you know, the the construction era area, he is walking on a puddle. But the way that Verhoeven shoots him, he puts something under the puddle to make it look like RoboCop is walking on water. It's this little touch of like, this is Jesus. Look at this miracle that he's doing. And he very much deliberately is trying to make the point that in America, he believes that, you know, That there's a streak of devout here that believes in the tenets of Jesus and believes in a hero and believes in somebody good and benevolent. But they also believe in a Jesus who, like, when shit really hits the fan, Jesus is probably willing to kill, to, like, agree with them. And he wanted to make that point, too, with RoboCop. He's like, Jesus will maybe save Clarence's life and not kill him and try to arrest him. But if he really has to kill him, this is the sort of leader that I think people worship in this country. like, all right, all right, I didn't want to kill you, but now I do have to blow your head off. I'm sick of this.
3: Interesting. Which is a very,
2: that is a very, very dark point. That is dark as anything I could think of. Well, that's very
3: Old Testament, right? Yeah. Like, it's very much like an eye for an eye. And, uh, you know, it's like that idea that, you know, vengeance will be rained down if if not obeyed, right? There's an element there.
2: Yeah, his exact quote on it is, Americans want to be humane, But if they think it takes too long, Christian morality is pushed
3: aside. Well, I think we see this idea time and time again. We're living in a culture where if someone gets shot because of a traffic violation upwards of 10 times, there are people who go, well, they shouldn't have run. Well, they weren't armed. It was a traffic violation. Arrest them, right? Not shoot them until dead, but there is this idea like, well, they should have listened, you know, and, and there's a, a removal from the humanity of that. And I think we talk about that a lot, like, well, he shouldn't have done that thing if you just did everything OK. And, and I think a lot of the times we live in a culture, where it's very hard to identify with or empathize with tragedy, because unless it happens to us, we can keep it so far removed. And this movie, I think, does a really good job of that.
2: Well, yeah. Of showing think- that. What I yeah. And in your example, it feels like when people get scared or unnerved, they revert back to there's a tendency for some people to revert into black and white thinking like, mm-hmm. well, if you we hadn't done X, like it's like it's it's too scary to think of the world of gray. Like, could the people yeah, we don't who live in? A, we don't live
3: in a black who, and white world. Yeah. Black and white is Old Testament. Black and white is Old West. Right. Like good guys, bad guys. But that's not life. Life is not, you know, there are definitely bad guys here, right? Uh, I would say a majority of people in this movie are bad guys. Uh, but we live in a society where you can't make those decisions. And maybe because of the lens of social media, and this is maybe where this movie does feel a bit old, You, we've now been put into so many people's lives through social media where you're able to see something going on in the moment, whether that, you know, is a live event. I think, you know, when Ferguson happened, so many people were videotaping it that you didn't have to read about it. You could actually see it. And it continues to happen more and more and more, where there's police camera footage being uh, pulled out or the fact that many people in an arrest situation pull out their camera. Now We actually have physical evidence of what's going on, not just the version of the story that is told on a news show without any, you know, um, boots on the ground. And I think that that is, that's the one thing that maybe Verhoeven didn't, didn't necessarily see, but that yeah. is like the only way that we can kind of give voice to the, the inequity going on here, because there is like, the, we can actually see it with our own eyes and not just hear somebody tell us about it.
2: Right. Verhoeven has, instead of that, the solution that we've been told is a solution that does not seem to be working out as a solution, which is the cops have cameras Mm-hmm. Like Robocop can record everything right. and play it back, and it helps Robocop. But there's well, never a question that like other people will see any of that besides Robocop.
3: Well, and but Robocop does use it, yeah, to incriminate it. other people multiple yeah. times. Uh, but again, when you get to the top of the pile, does it even make a difference, right? Because who, you know, he—that's what I think the movie is talking about too. You can't, you can't take down corruption if you are prevented from you know accessing that top level like they don't want to take down corruption there's this is not a robot that's there to reform the city it's a robot that is simply created to clean up the streets enough so they can put up a construction project. I mean, that's what the movie's about. It's not about we need to clean up the streets. It's like we need to just make sure all this shit's cleared out so we can move in a city that will then also have tons of drugs and we'll make money there as well because that will fuel it. Like, we're it's it has nothing to do with protecting the people. This is protecting and serving is just a way to kind of have everybody looking in one hand while something else is going on well, yeah. over there.
2: I mean, in a way, this fictional Detroit is exactly what's happening to like Egypt, Mm. you know, like, like one of the things that's going on in Cairo right now is that like Cairo as a city is just absolutely like collapsing in terms of taking care of its citizens. You know, there's just like, there's traffic and you can't breathe and like there's trash all over the streets and it's a really hard place to be and to walk around and to do anything. Um, It's just like, it's It's a a struggle to have a nice life there. If you live in Cairo, if you're poor, like you just can't, it's really difficult. So instead of spending money cleaning up Cairo and making it more livable, making their better public transportation, making it easier for people to get around, cleaning up the streets, cleaning up the pollution, the rich people of Cairo are just building a new capital city and they're putting it like 30 miles away, like to the, to the, to the West and they're just going to build like the new Detroit of Cairo, and so all the rich people and all the embassies are going to move to nice new Cairo, and they're just going to leave old Cairo for all of the poor people, and just let it continue to be destroyed. Well, and I mean, like that's that that is the thing that is actually happening right now.
3: Well, I mean, but like let's even look at the city where this is taking place, Detroit. the The auto industry was in Detroit, right? And this idea that once the auto industry died and it oversees the production of cars. A work that were coming in that were viewed as better and cheaper. It just shut down the city, right? It did, and, and what happened? The city didn't change. People just got the hell out and it kind of collapsed. And Detroit, you know, notoriously has been auctioned up for use. Just come here and blow shit up. Like, we don't care. Like, blow up our buildings. Like, you know, whether it's Transformers or that new Red Dawn movie, which is now an old Red Dawn movie, but the, the remake of Red Dawn. Like, Detroit, like, they didn't know what to do. But, like, corporate culture came in, destroyed the industry, and everyone got out. And this is what you see time and time again. Like, this idea of, you know, use it up and move on. And, and that, to me, is something that's always going on here in our own, in our own country. Uh, time and time again.
0: I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone, Paul Giamatti, and America Ferreira. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, Listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now.
3: I know we're talking about a lot of big themes about why this movie worked, but I do want to go back to Peter Weller just for a second, just to give him a little bit more shine, because this performance we almost didn't get this performance. We almost didn't get Peter Weller in this movie, regardless of the other actors that auditioned or were considered. Peter Weller did get the role and worked with this coach, you know, uh, for months to kind of figure out how to do this, how to do this in in a proper way, like work with a mime coach, you know, and uh, really wanted to give this performance uh, like a level of truthfulness. But the costume wasn't finished in time. He had very little time to actually practice in the real costume. When he gets on set in this costume, uh, it's so hot because it's in Dallas. It's like 90 degrees. He's losing three pounds a day while shooting. He's going insane. And Verhoeven fires him. He's like, get out of here. And they're like, okay, let's get somebody else now. And they get Lance Henriksen. You know, maybe we should bring him in. But the costume was built for Weller. So only Weller can fit there. So they force Verhoeven to, like, mend his relationship with him. Um, And then, you know, Peter Weller had to then approach this costume and this mime work in a completely different way. So it was slower and more deliberate. And... He is now, again, trapped in this costume. He's taking prescription medication to cope with this insomnia. And now he's getting drunk on set. So everything that we see of Weller here is under extreme duress. And in a way, I was thinking about this and going, he's half of an actor because he's not sleeping. He's on pills. He's intoxicated. Kind of like this version of himself. I think about Get Out, like there's a small version of Peter Weller, the actor behind the eyes, but what is in front of the camera is the, just the body of him. And I wonder if then that helped him kind of create this performance that was hollow, yet had something there. Like you could still see him there, but he was a, 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 a more hollowed version of himself.
2: I wonder. I mean, I I do know that he went into it really, really deeply. Like, if Verhoeven on set uh, wanted to say, like, Action Peter or Action Murphy, like, Weller would not respond. Like, Weller would only respond if he was called Robo. Robo was the only thing that he would respond to on set. He was like, I am a robot. And, like, the the, the the behind-the-scenes stories of this movie – basically do seem to boil down to like a lot of people screaming at each other. Like this, the screenwriters were of course very serious about this. They had a real passion that they had in mind. I think Ed Newmyer was the one who did like most of the yelling on set, or at least was there and was most like, it has to be this way. It has to be this way. It has to be this way. Um, it, that Weller of course was like under so much duress, so stressed. It was like 115 in his suit. I mean, it's crazy like that. And, you know, and he's just like, Miserable. All of the work that he's doing is now like going awry. By the way, this suit,
3: just so you know is like foam latex. It also has like polyurethane. So it's very rigid in some spaces. It's got a fiberglass helmet. His nose is completely covered. He's got, you know, sections with aluminum and ball bearings. And, you know, there's like an internal harness of hooks, you know, so he can move a little bit quicker, you know, they're like,
2: and even in the part where you think he'd be happier because his helmet's off and you can see at least his like flayed scalp. Like, that was four and a half hours of makeup to, like, hook him into that flayed scalp device every day. Even though Verhoeven and Weller fought, though, about the suit, Verhoeven once said that one of his favorite things about showing up on set was sometimes he would get there and Weller would be already mostly in costume and sort of grumpy and sad, and he would have found a corner to hide in on set, and he'd be leaning against the wall playing the trumpet dressed as RoboCop.
3: Oh, I wish there was footage of that. (laughs) I mean, the costume itself... You know, they people said, Oh, it's only twenty-five pounds. Other people are like, it's eighty pounds. You know, that that uh, that gun even that he has to to carry, like, everything about it is cumbersome and yeah. and it's big, right? And it's loud. And I think that in a weird way, you talking about people arguing on set and yelling on set kind of infects the movie because the performances here are big. I mean, everyone is just it—it it feels like, and I talked about this earlier, like Commedia dell'arte. Like it's like it's mask work. It's like Peter Weller's behind a mask. Who is he behind the mask? And every character are these heightened comical characters. I, I would say, with the exception of Ronnie Cox and Nancy Allen, and maybe even the uh, the chief of police. Like everyone else is big. Like is big, and it. And I think there's this energy that Verhoeven is bringing to where it's like let's throw away the script, improvise here. And they're improvising these scenes. So you get this like insane scene with like Kurtwood Smith and the secretary outside of Dick Jones's office, who happens to be his wife, where he's like, oh, hope you can fit me in. You know, spitting <laughs> on the desk, putting gum on the like. So everyone, it feels to me like a cast of people that are, you know, improvising, but just kind of pushing it. And, and I think that Verhoeven is like, yeah, yeah, more of that, more of that. And like, and so you get this energy that the movie feels not grounded. And I think that that also makes it work. And I think the success of films ground the action and make it meaner and make it darker and make it not as fun. Like, I think a satire has to be big or it's depressing. And that's, and I think that, like, maybe this energy from him behind the scenes and everyone in front of the camera, like, it's bringing this, it's not even machismo, but it's like, it is just this trying to top, like, how do you play against Uh, an 80 pound robot like how do you do a scene against them well i'm gonna try to outact you and and i think it becomes i think that that's why this movie really really does work but it is a lot of weird pieces which i don't even know how well thought out it was if it was just an accident yeah i
2: mean because in what other universe would your bad guy be named clarence right Mm. clarence I mean, like, what a contrast to having a Robocop. Your villain is named Clarence. Your villain is, like, skinny and small. Your villain is, like, acting like he's coked up out of his mind. I think there's a lot of drug use that didn't quite make it on on screen, all of it. But, like, you know— Kurtwood Smith is having a blast with this. Like, can I split blood, blood, please? Will you let me split spit some blood? I would love to do that. And his energy is, I love it, what you're saying. He's so different to Robocop. He's so different to everything else. You know, you it's like electric, the way that he approaches this film. And yeah, like Nancy Allen, I think, is giving like a credible, serious performance. You know, and I'm really charming. I mean, I love Nancy Allen. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, she's... She's in Carrie, she's in Blowout, you know, she's uh, Brian De Palma's ex-wife. She's also the daughter of a New York cop, so, like, she knew everything about what it was like to be in a cop family, and she said what she gave to this role is, like, she grew up knowing that to her dad, police was first, family was second, and that his partner was the most important person in his life. So she was like, I know that that is what I'm going to bring to this character, that who your partner is, is the central person in your life. And so I, I love how she grounds that character because I think you need that from her. But everybody yeah. else, all the all the bad guys, they're just nuts. And they're all so different. And you can't picture any of the bad guys even getting along or being friends. Like, really? Like, like Leon is not inviting Emil to go hang out with him at the club, you know? Like, right. Steve Min is not hanging out with Leon at the club. They seem like they all kind of do their thing when they're not on the clock. They all do their own mischievous bad guy deeds. Although, like, nobody is as cool as Leon hanging out at, like, Another great retro club. Thank you, Blade. I'm glad we have two, like, cheeky music retro clubs right in a row. Actually, I have literally a clip from that. This is when Leon is getting beaten up, and all of the people in the dance club, who are not evil bad guys, you know, in the scale of everybody else, are watching a dude get beaten up in front of them by a robot cop, and they are also completely not caring. Go ahead. Beat this guy up. We're just going to keep dancing.
3: Where is Clarence Barniger? (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <Okay. No!
3: laughs> Let's talk.
2: But yeah, but to like the tension of it all of this set, I mean, Verhoeven is yelling a lot. Verhoeven is mad at everything. Verhoeven is very serious. Here is a thing that Ed Newmeyer said on Verhoeven and directors like him that he intends as a compliment. He says, directors like Verhoeven, quote, once they decide they need to do something, they never let it go. And I mean, they never let it go. And if you get between them and the last three shots they need, they'll fucking kill you. They will. And they will kill all your children and your family and they will burn down your house. And that is why their movies are good.
3: (laughs) That is his compliment to Verhoeven. Well, I think that, you know, we talk about this idea, like, and we've talked about this a lot, like this, I can't take no for an answer. And oftentimes we talk a lot about, oh my gosh, they're a genius, whether it's James Cameron, who has to do it in a certain way, or Stanley Kubrick, or, you know, even if we go back to our first episode, when we're talking about Orson Welles, like this idea, like we celebrate these, these people who don't take no for an answer. And look, there are many people who don't take no for an answer and turn in very bad work. But, um, I think that, you know, it's, there's a bullying quality here. Like I want it done my way and it has to be, you know, viewed through this lens. I think that Verhoeven knew what he was doing or what he wanted. And I think what he wanted was blood. I think he got really lucky to have these writers that had an amazing handle on satire, but I also felt like this movie is visually interesting to watch and works on two levels because it's not preachy. It is a movie that you can put, you know, next to Predator and make, oh, I love Robocop and Predator. It doesn't make you feel like, oh boy, I have to watch this commentary on society. Like you see things in it, but it works on both levels. He makes it really entertaining and he doesn't make it dry. So I think all these things really work for it. I also think, you know, when you look at the title of the movie, Robocop. Right now, now we know culturally RoboCop is cool and badass. But Robocop is a hilarious oh, yeah. title.
2: It's like Sharknado.
3: Yes. And it's it's so stupid. And I think that, you know, the idea that his son is watching a show about a Robocop and it's a kid show. And they, you know, and then he becomes a RoboCop. Like, it, it, it's very much like what you're saying about Star Wars. It's like, oh, you can't say no to the Star Wars program because it's named after a movie that you like. You can't say no to this program in the police department because it has a fun name. It's a RoboCop. And, you know, and, and the fact that you watch this franchise devolve more and more into a children's franchise. It's an animated cartoon. There are action figures. The movies become PG. Even the remake is PG-13. It's like, this is not what it was intending like we, this is more and more tj laser as it goes on and on and on it just simply is a yeah. robocop not a no, commentary on on this
2: it's true like a lot of crazy things kind of happen to this franchise i mean like you know Neumeier and minor had these really strict rules for what robocop can do and number one was like robocop cannot kiss a girl like that's impossible and, and Verhoeven really had their back on that. One of the things he asked uh, Nancy Allen to do is he was like, you know what I want your character to do? I want you to cut your hair short. I want you to be boy-like. I want you to eat a lot. So I don't want audience members to expect a romance between you and RoboCop. I want to try to take that off the table. And oh, my if you God. Can that would be so character- awkward. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, if you can push your character in that way, we'll we'll even remove that suspense of people worrying that there will have to be romance in this film. But they also are like, Robot- RoboCop can never be seen on a phone and RoboCop can never fly. And those are things that the sequels definitely let happen.
3: Oh, yeah. And,
2: and part of what happens here is like kids are not allowed to see RoboCop the movie. You know, this is a movie that was like rated X by the MPAA. They say 11 times, the truth is it's eight. But even so, eight times of resubmitting this film to the MPAA to get an R is a lot of work. But it's such a hit that then they're like, oh man, we should have a cartoon and we should have comic books. And then they do make RoboCop 2, even though kids aren't quite supposed to see it, like they know that this movie is going to kill on video. So they're like are pushing it more and more in this
3: direction. But they also like hire Frank Miller to come in and write the sequel. Frank Miller, Daredevil, Batman, Sin City, like this is a luminary in the comic book world and known for writing some of the darker books like Year One or The Dark Knight Returns, you know, like like his books are are brutal, you know, and you see a little bit of that in Sin City. It it doesn't have like a light touch. Uh, And so I think that like maybe like he loses some of that fun that this movie has, even though it's not like fun, like light, it's saying something, but it's, it's less um, vibrant.
2: Well, totally. I mean, and the whole reason that he is writing this script is also just because of, of a series of dominoes that fall in, in a strange way, which is, you know, Newmeyer and Miner are supposed to write the script for two. And they actually do. They write a script that's called like Robocop, The Corporate Wars. They're going to double down on this like corporate idea. And so it was going to open with like Robocop dying in this like blast of missile fire and then going offline and waking up 25 years later in the future. Oh, and in this wow. future RoboCop, all these cities have mutated to where they're called plexes. So like instead of LA, you'd have like LA Plex or New York Plex. And America is now a country called America. Like a multiplex almost. Uh-huh. Yeah. And like and there's a TV comedy guy who's the president. Uh, but like he's only pretending to be the president. And there's of course like a corporate tech guy who's like really running the country. And so that was gonna be the setup, but like Orion hated the script and they're like, you have to redo it. But then there was a writer's strike. So then they couldn't redo it. So then, because Frank Miller was not in the WGA, that's how he got tasked to write Robocop 2. And then they tried to find like interesting people to direct it. Like they asked like Alex Cox, who did Repo Man, to do the sequel and he would have been great. But then he went into the theater like right after he said he'd be interested and he saw The Exorcist 2. And then he came out and he called the producer, uh, John Davison, and he was like, there should never be any sequels. He was like, Exorcist 2 killed it. I would never want to make a sequel ever. Um, So then that is how, like, Irvin Kirshner, who did Empire Strikes Back, gets it, but he doesn't get the sense of humor.
3: Well, but, but I even, also will say, too, just to defend Frank Miller for a little bit, like Frank Miller was also rewritten, too, right? Like Frank Miller was, um, I think, uh, Wallen Green was brought on to, like, co-write it with him. And there are a lot of websites. Uh, if you go on to RoboCop Archive, you can actually see the differences of the scripts, uh, you know, what what Frank Miller intended versus what got left. You know, so yeah. I think you get a lot of people here and, and you're talking about this idea before about... Oh, you know, if you stop these four shots, like if you get this, you know, then the director will kill you. Like you're losing this voice, a singular voice. I I saw a clip on the um, DGA website of Martin Scorsese talking about, you know, movies by committee don't work. And it seems like Robocop becomes a movie by committee. It's multiple writers. It's, um, it's just... It's different interests pulling at it. It's a kid's movie. It's an adult movie. We want to make it like this, rewrite that. And, and I think there's a singular vision that at least uh, you get with Verhoeven and the writers on this first film where they were aligned.
2: Yeah, they get to invent what RoboCop is. And by the time you're making RoboCop 3, there's so many competing RoboCops that it's, like, impossible. You know, by the time you get to, like, RoboCop 3, like, you have RoboCop the NES game, you know, which I actually like the, the NES game music a little bit because I think it captures some of the score, which is just wonderful. You've also got like RoboCop showing up on, you know, wrestling, wrestling with the wrestler Sting for some reason.
3: But you made a big mistake when you started messing with the
0: little stingers. So now the time has come. And Flair, if you
2: think you're invincible, take it over, Kree. I mean, when you have RoboCop in all of these different directions, who is RoboCop? He's this, he's a cartoon, he's a wrestler. You know, I mean, we're still a, when
3: RoboCop 3 comes out, there's also a Fox show called RoboCop. Like they are they are destroying this character. Obviously Peter Weller drops out, well not obviously. Peter Weller drops out for the third one. It like different people are doing the role. Everything is we were, I think we were talking about this in another episode. Like when you are a faceless character, Shrek, that's what we were talking about. Like Shrek can be anything. Shrek can sell you McDonald's, you know, chicken sandwiches and Shrek can be hosting, uh, you know, a kid's choice Awards segment. Like you lose like a faceless character. You start to lose the identity of these people. And it's, and, and what the intent is, and you can make it whatever, it becomes, it becomes a product. And that's what this whole movie yeah. is about. Like, he is not a human. He is a product. It's said so many times. And I think we see that with our social media. Like, we own your photos. We own your posts. You are, you are just, we are collecting your information and you are our product. We are selling you. We are selling your information to consumers, right? And RoboCop is the first, you know, example of that in a way.
2: Yeah, no, it's really true. I mean, the facelessness of him really helps them market the film, you know, because they're like, how on earth are we going to market this RoboCop movie in the first place, right? Like, like, how are we going to make this, like, dark satire and, like, sell it to people? And when you watch the ads, the original trailers are kind of funny because they're, like, really trying to put a fun spin on it, you know, like a fun spin on this movie. Your move, creep.
0: The future of law enforcement. RoboCop. Thank you for your cooperation.
2: But then also, they're like hiring all of these actors to put on cheaper versions of the RoboCop suit and just like visit everywhere for all of these promotional like photos to try to like get RoboCop out there to get people interested in this character because they're inventing. They're basically inventing a superhero. You know, they they don't have even the history that Blade had, that mild history that people brought with them in the theater. There's like no name recognition here. They wind up paying. Richard Nixon, $25,000 to take a picture with RoboCop.
3: Oh my God.
2: You can find this picture online. It's amazing. First Elvis,
3: then RoboCop.
2: Yeah. There's a picture online of Richard Nixon with RoboCop. They pay him $25,000 to do it. They run that picture in all these newspapers. Nixon, to his credit, takes that money and donates it to like the Boys Club of America or something like that. He doesn't keep it, but they're trying anything. And because there is no face to him, he's easy to sell. And that is weird, because you're right, it exactly undercuts the point of the movie. Like, what does it mean when even today in the modern era, we have KFC commercials with RoboCop like this one?
0: Howdy, folks. Try my $20 fill-up. You have 10 seconds to comply. You now have five seconds to comply. Four, three, two. Try any $20 fill-up at KFC.
2: I mean, a few things about that. A... That's not even Robocop's line. That's like Ed 209. But fine beyond that, what does it what is happening inside my brain and your brain right now? When like our commercials on TV are no different than the commercials that are like, you know, the Newcomb commercial. Oh, it's families are all gonna die. And oh my god, it's so fun. They're exactly like the ones in the satire, starring the character who represents the face of corporate, you know, disenfranchisement of the soul. And yet now it's just also funny and it sells chicken. Like it, it just feels like absolutely full circle. Like, like you cannot make a RoboCop punch strong enough to punch us through the trajectory that we are on as a culture. I no mean, matter how
3: RoboCop glowers, we're still here in this timeline. I would even go one step further and say like next year, a brand new RoboCop game is coming out. One of the big things about this RoboCop game, because I believe... Uh, This happened maybe about two or three years ago. Peter Weller came back to do the voice for uh, a Mortal Kombat character, the RoboCop in Mortal Kombat. Like that was one of the uh, hidden characters or maybe it came with the game, whatever it was. If you're like, oh my gosh, Peter Weller's back. Now, the reason why he didn't do RoboCop 3, maybe there's multiple reasons, but he opted to do Naked Lunch instead. Part of me feels like maybe the paycheck was good, but it seems like he was done with the franchise at that point. But now... Next year, a new game is coming out, a Robocop game and there's been many, but like you played uh but this new one is just a first person shooter. so we are we're going back we're making a game're like, oh my gosh, we got Robocop. we're going back like, and it's just about him going and killing people. It's like, all right well like we've lost we have lost the thread of what this movie is doing. I think that this is why this movie, if you don't watch it closely enough, if you don't look at everything, and and really examine it. You can you lose the sarcasm, you lose the winking at the audience, and you just see it as what it is, which is just a kick ass cop.
2: Well, yeah, and I I don't know if this is gonna happen. Like we are we are releasing this a couple days out from July seventeenth, twenty twenty two. Rumor is on July seventeenth, twenty twenty two, the thirty five year anniversary of RoboCop being released. They will finally finally unveil the RoboCop statue in Detroit that they have been talking about for over a decade. Have you been following this story? I've
3: been hearing about this story of the RoboCop statue. I'm hoping that it it gets there because we are going on tour with How Did This Get Made? And and we're going to Detroit. I would love to take a picture with it.
2: (laughs) I mean, basically the story is like somebody tweeted that, you know, if Rocky has a statue in Philadelphia, why can't RoboCop have a statue in Detroit? And so then they fundraised for it. They have built a statue that is like 11 feet tall. They're supposed to put it in like the Detroit Children's Science Center, I think. But I mean, then it, like like, by the way, it's been a long time. Science, yeah.
3: Crowdfunded in 2011. All right. So yeah. It's a decade later and it doesn't have a home. And it's like you have like there's pictures of like an adult woman sitting on its shoulders. It's, it is a large. It's
2: huge. But yeah, the, the Detroit Science Center said during the pandemic that they didn't feel like they should be spending money on a RoboCop statue to, like, mount it into the earth. Because it will take, even even if you crowdsource building it, to mount it, to deliver it, to protect it, to ensure it in case it falls on people. You know, there's, like, money that it takes to keep this thing maintained. Which is why, like, newscasters who do not sound much different than the newscasters in the movie are debating whether or not the statue should even exist.
3: Now at nine, we know the mayor has bigger fish to fry, but think about the idea. Philadelphia has a statue of Rocky. Should Detroit honor RoboCop? As much as I
0: love RoboCop, would love to see a statue there. I just, if there's an ounce of taxpayer dollars put into this, I think, oh. what a crime. Yeah, seriously.
3: As much as I love RoboCop, yes, they should build a RoboCop <laughs> of statue. Course.
0: And as much as I really don't care, <laughs> there you have it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Not a fan of the movie. If somebody
3: wants to donate the statue and totally. pay for the statue, Absolutely. I whatever. Yeah. That's, the, that's a different care. thing. No. But in a city like Detroit, I think don't think they can even afford to to do something they're they're having problems there's no question we'll get Uh, to some comments here and uh, i'm holding
2: my breath i don't know i don't know i mean it should be somewhere it's got to show
3: up somewhere i want to just talk to you i don't know if you saw but i thought that maybe you might have um the remake the 2014 remake of robocop um with uh you know this is this came out and i think a lot of people were excited because it was like okay this is interesting. Like, what a great idea. We will remake RoboCop in a time where it feels like it might be, you know, can we grab onto everything that we have just been talking about, the satire and everything like that. And I think people were very excited for it, but it came out in really just mixed reviews. And, you know, it just, you know, it, it's not violent. Uh, it, you know, it, uh, it doesn't really have any social satire. It doesn't have any humor. Um, you know, gross is a lot of money, but I just didn't know if you saw it or had any opinions on that one.
2: I did see it. I did see it. I thought it didn't make that much of a reason for itself to exist, but there was like a scene that I really liked in it where it's not so, it's not even just about building the RoboCop. There's a lot of energy in the movie about, focus grouping the RoboCop once you have him to make him be a better RoboCop. So he exists. And then they're like, oh, you know, his reaction time is too slow. I think he still has some human emotion. We have to get rid of the human emotion. So they tweak with him. They're like, oh, people don't think he's scary enough. So then they paint RoboCop black. So they're tweaking with him the whole time. And I thought that element of it was pretty funny. But other than that, there was it, it felt like it had no soul. I think that's what I wrote in my review. That, like, this is a movie that's specifically about the loss of soul, about a, the loss of a human soul. What is human? You know, what does it take to be a human being? And this movie felt very empty to me. I mean, but so, to that, but to that, like, limit of it, one thing that I think really irritates the people who made Robocop is when people refer to Robocop as Murphy. Because it's like, to them, they want to be very clear. Once once Murphy is dead, there is no Murphy. This person that you are seeing on screen is not Murphy. That is a robot cop. You know and In the script, they don't call him Murphy ever again. They only call him like robo in the script from the point that he gets turned.
1: Well, Even in yeah. that last
2: line, you know, like the last line, there's kind of that beautiful moment where somebody's like, what do we call you? And, you know, he says, Murphy. Yes. The script does not say Murphy says Murphy. The script says Robocop says Murphy. So even though the robot thinks oh, he has a name called Murphy, the movie is, is dark enough to insist on the fact that he is not Murphy and will never be Murphy again.
3: All right. Well, I know this has been a big episode, but I want to ask you another question about this movie. Talking about Blade earlier, we talked about this idea of a film that is a great film, an iconic film. But is it a great movie? And I'm just going to jump in and not even be coy with it. I think this movie is really smart, funny, and interesting. But structurally, it kind of runs its wheels a little bit. It feels like it spins its wheels. Like, it feels like it has a really strong launch. And then... The end of the second act into the third act, we're just kind of having RoboCop fight different things. It's like, well, fight this big robot now. Uh, okay, now you'll fight in this factory. Like it, like it. There's a real push and drive to it, and when it just stops with the executives or the the actual drama of it, like I feel like you're like, okay, what's the next scene? What's the next scene? What's the, you know? It, it really kind of. I feel like once he confronts Dick Jones, that's the end of the movie, but then it goes on for like another 30 minutes. Did you feel that at all?
2: I mean, I will admit that part of my bias with this movie is I didn't see it until I was older. Mm -hmm. So I was only exposed to dumb RoboCops for most of my life. Right. And so to finally watch the real one when I was old enough to appreciate it and realize I had been wrong about what I thought RoboCop was my whole life. Or I guess I'd been right about the bad RoboCops, but wrong about the origin of RoboCop. This movie means a lot to me because of that.
3: You know, as like I agree. Like I I like this movie a lot. I just felt like it just stutter steps a little bit. Like it's like you have him fight this ED-209 which is like something that you feel like is an insurmountable challenge. He gets his ass kicked and then he goes to fight these guys who just, well, I guess they have military-grade weapons now. Like, it just, like, there's something about it that just, I, I don't mean, know. I think it, you yeah. could
2: say, and I would agree with you, that it is so much about the society that it doesn't have the clearest arc for RoboCop himself. Right. You know, because it is, he, I think Verhoeven and the screenwriters are more interested even in just the world around RoboCop that he exists in. Like, they've made a really crazy fish tank where there's, like, like this councilman who terrifies me today because he's, like, screaming about how he wants a recount and he's going to kill people to get it.
1: Okay, Miller,
0: don't hurt the mayor. I'll give you whatever you want. First, don't fuck with me. I'm a desperate man. And second, I want some fresh coffee. And third, I want a recount. And no matter how it turns out, I want my old job back. Okay. And I want a bigger office. And I want a new car. And I want the city to pay for it all. What kind of car, Miller? Miller? Something with reclining leather seats that goes really fast and gets really shitty gas mileage. How about the 6,000 SUX? Yeah. Okay, sure. What about cruise control? Does it come with cruise control? Ain't no problem, Miller.
2: Like that councilman is almost as interesting to them as RoboCop himself. Absolutely. This this free-sized society hippie screaming, you know, at the news camera. This guy is as interesting to them, I think, as RoboCop himself. It's a free society.
0: Except there ain't nothing free because there's no guarantees, you know. (laughs) You're on your own. (laughs) There's a lot of jungle.
3: And then the end feels like more what we get from the success of films and the animation, which is just action sequences. And they're not bad action sequences. I mean, they're amazing. The toxic waste truck crash where, you know, one of the bad guys who, by the way, identifies RoboCop just by his mouth. I'm amazed. I would be amazed that anyone could put that all together. He's like, hey, I know you. Really? It takes his <laughs> partner who is with him a couple, of, a couple of times to figure it out. But... um, but yeah, it just becomes these action sequences that are not bad, but they they there's not much more there, right? There's not much more. And I think that they go for this moment where it's like, we're going to take off the mask. But when he takes off the mask and looks at himself, he's not really there. Like, it's not like, oh, I see me. I know who I am. Like, he yeah. already had that moment. Like, he already had that awakening. So I think part of that is just showmanship for the film to be like ah that's what he looks like now and he's fighting without the mask on it's like "Uh, okay sure but it's not like nothing changes right it's not like I don't want to wear the mask anymore I am this person or that's me you you, you know it it sort of feels like make
2: decisions because they are they are committed to the fact that he's a robot
3: Right, which is cool, but it's not like a scene where when you finally take off Darth Vader's mask at the end of Return of the Jedi, you have this moment where he wants to look at his son with his own eyes and, and have that moment where it's like, let me connect with you. Like when he takes off the mask, he's like, you're not going to like what you see. And he oddly knows what he looks like. that he, like he, He's aware yeah. of it. Like there's no tear. I don't think that there should have been a tear. I just feel like it's a move that was like, we'll show you this cool part but it's like there's not any real motivation for it besides that the visor is broken but why does he need a visor because we realize that his eyes actually see the same way that his visor does because his eye you know he's when we look in yeah. his training uh, lens it's there so I don't know there's something about it that I was like, oh, I'm really enjoying this. I love this. This is smart and great. But the last, like, 30 minutes, I'm like, okay. It's a little bit of, like, just spinning its wheels.
2: Yeah. Well, I think, like, I think all of the emotion in it is designed so that it has to only come from us. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's like when Robocop is walking through his old home. And, like, you you have, you know, he's kind of stumbling through and he's getting these, like, flashbacks of his wife and his kids. He is registering the fact of it, but I, but he's not registering the emotion. It's like us watching that scene and hearing the violins over it, you know, the searing right. violins. We're supposed to feel kind of saddened and also struck by just like the complete surreality that we're watching a robot walk through the house where he used to be a human. We're supposed to be feeling for him.
3: have to tell you something. I love you. But I think it like where you get the emotional puncher, the only way he can kind of show the emotion is punching through the TV. Right? Like that yeah. that's the impact moment in a way. Like that's, you know, that's a, a, a very it's a great like I like that scene of him going back through the house and we're seeing the other side of the memories. You know, we're seeing a little bit more fuller life. Um, but you're right. We
2: have to care about punishing the bad guys yeah, in the order movie, for like the rest of it to work. I mean, I think the "you're fired" thing is great because it's like you know, in this corporate world, it's true. The only thing that protects anybody is their job and their connection to power. Yes. So once you lose that,
3: that you're out. sequence, yeah, and that sequence to me was what it felt like it was leading up to. Right, like we want that sequence. Right, like I like the reveal that when he goes to fight dick jones he can't arrest him and he gets stuck and then you know and then that final sequence is it so it does end on a high note i just think it just has a couple moments there where it's like All right, let's blow some more shit up and it's fun and it's yeah anything to see more kurtwood smith i will say that also you know we talked a lot about um what this movie does and says and i think there's something really interesting a small little detail just about kurtwood's performance too like when he goes to see dick jones he dresses like someone who would be in that building. And then when he is with his gang of, you know, uh, 'er ne'er-do-wells, he is in his costume as a bad guy. And I thought that was really interesting, too, like the idea that you can, that, you know, we are a culture, like you can put on a different costume and become something different. Like he, like, that's a really interesting, subtle choice to make, that he knows I dress this way in this world and I dress this way in this world when I'm making my deal. Like that that other part about the drugs and stuff, it's like, ah, do we need all this? Like who's going to have the drugs? And you know, like that sequence where they're in the drug dealership or whatever the drug, you know, manufacturing plant, like in that, like, hey, Put down your guns. It's like, all right, I don't really care about that. That kind of feels like these remnant plots of like an '80s cop movie. Like yeah. that feels I feel like, like more it was like
2: guns, guns, guns.
3: Yeah, it just feels right. like that. But I, but I think the movie does a lot more interesting choices with, like you said, like the ending sequence, the fact that you have a bad guy who can traverse both worlds, you know, and you start to think like, oh, is Kurtwood Smith? Like, is he? You know, is he really this guy in the in the hoodie and leather jacket, or is he really the businessman? And it, there's a part of me that thinks he really is the businessman. Like, you know, he, uh, but he can walk both sides of it. I and that's do. what Reagan did too, right? I mean, like he got down. You know, it's like the Iran Contra scandal, right? Like, oh, we'll get over here, we'll give them weapons. I'm on TV. Like, I didn't know anything about it. Or, or Ollie North, right? Like that. These people that we had, these politicians who were like, I'm secretly evil, but you put me in a costume. And that's. And I think that that's also. You know, this idea that, like, you wear a uniform and people expect a certain thing of you, uh, but you don't have to act that way. But we're expected to act that way.
2: I mean, I love that observation. And it is true, as an aside, that Reagan was so aware of what cameras were and were not capturing that, you know, that whole obsession he had with jelly beans— Mm. How like everybody's like, oh, the president loves jelly beans. Oh, he can't be too far from his jelly beans. Oh, the president, he's always got to have jelly beans. Like he's photographed consistently with photographs of with uh, with bowls of jelly beans on his desk. If he's like in a serious meeting, if he's over here and he did it strategically because he thought if you see the president eating jelly beans, you just must think he's a nice guy, a kindly old man who likes jelly beans. It was like this kind of subconscious Kung Fu Mm. to be like, how bad could I be? Look, I like jelly beans. I'm your grandpa.
3: I love it. Uh, all right, so Amy, we've talked a lot about this movie, and it's it's actually to me, I'm very excited to get into Starship Troopers, which I think a lot of people think is the you know the better version or the more heightened, you know, maybe the more aware version of Verhoeven. This is the first foray into this world, and I think you know maybe making even a stronger point. So before we get into that and and move forward, I want to know. You know, what was the reaction to RoboCop when it comes out? Like, what do people think? Because, again, people are watching the theatrical version, not the director's version. So there's a like you said, there are jokes that are missing. There is uh, a heightening of performances that we're, we're losing. But how is it received?
2: Critics did mostly clue into what Verhoeven was trying to do in this film. Critics mostly got the joke. Good for them, critics. I was worried they would have missed it. There are a few reviews that didn't like it. Um, The one that I pulled is from the Chicago Tribune, and they wrote that Robocop is, quote, a stylish piece of work that leaves a sour aftertaste. The action scenes are overscaled, overfamiliar, and overdirected. All too often, Verhoeven sequences collapse into simple displays of firepower instead of developing the tension and momentum that James Cameron achieved with similar material in The Terminator with Arnold Schwarzenegger. That might be what you're kind of saying. Mm. The last third of the film, which finds Verhoeven routinely ticking off plot points between extravagant explosions of violence, becomes, frankly, tedious. RoboCop relies for most of its impact, and more disturbingly for much of its comedy, on an absurd exaggeration of physical force. A simple punch to the jaw is never enough when there is a monstrous chromium-plated handgun around. A handgun is never enough when characters can pick up high-powered rifles or portable rocket launchers. The comic strategy consists of following a wild display of violence with a stroke of understated sarcasm. When one character gets an arm blown off, another is sure to answer, give the man a hand. It's a technique inherited from the Schwarzenegger films and from the Bond films and the spaghetti westerns before them, and it's one that never fails to get a laugh, perhaps because the sarcasm provides an immediate distance and relief from the shock and exhilaration of the violence, a way of tamping down whatever unruly passions are aroused by the display of force. The effect may or may not be a pernicious one, but is certainly mechanical and certainly underhanded. Another way for movies to prey on res- reflexive responses, a further extension of the ancient low road. Mm. So it reads to me like he thought that Verhoeven wasn't making a comment about this particular world being numb to violence, that Verhoeven was taking advantage of the fact that we are already living in a world that is numb to violence and giving us jokes to make us laugh. It's
3: really interesting. And I think that, you know, when you look at a list of like the best sci-fi films of all time, RoboCop is there. I think, you know, Metropolis and Robocop are films that people talk about a lot, as far as, you know, films that are talking about bigger issues, about our society. And obviously there are movies like Terminator on there as well. But Robocop is, I think, a film that speaks to something that is as true as today as it was on the day it came out. Um, So I do think that this film kind of belongs in this rarefied air, even if it isn't a perfect movie. Like, conversely, like, this is a movie that I would consider more than Blade to be one of the hundred best films because of what it's saying. Now I'm not gonna make that decision right now because we'll talk about Starship Troopers and not that we can only have one Verhoeven, but it's just the idea that I want to wait to to weigh in.
2: That is fair. But you know what you do not have to wait for? What? For actual Robocops walking the streets. Did you know that there is a RoboCop in Huntington Beach? What? A RoboCop? No. Oh yeah. There's a real life RoboCop. He's called Robocop. Uh, he looks like a blue egg, blue and white egg. And he, uh, walks around like patrolling playgrounds. He sounds kind of like this when he patrols.
1: Good day to you.
2: Now, this RoboCop, you might ask, is he good at his job? He basically walks around and he's like, don't litter be nice to people, but if you if there is an emergency, you go up to him and he's got like buttons like call the police, do this, blah, 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 blah. He has not stopped much in the way of crime. This is the one positive news report I could find about the Huntington Park RoboCop.
0: So initially there was some negative uh, sort of reaction to the robot. The robot was vandalized and it was tipped over. But again, because it is a sophisticated camera system, it captured the images and the the video of the incident and all of the uh, individuals involved. And by accessing that video, we were able to round up all of these individuals within six or eight hours. (laughs) I mean,
2: to me, that just sounds like entrapment. He is like, I'm a little robot. Don't you want to tip me over? And then somebody does. I mean it's like not that much different than like dressing up and like soliciting. You know like a cop trying to be like, "Hey, you want to buy some drugs?" And then like causing a crime to happen. What if you weren't even thinking about buying drugs? <laughs> I mean, that I I don't know about that. There All is right. like Well, we'll
3: be pushing th- over a lot of these Amazon robots, I'm sure soon enough yeah. too.
2: There is one story that like the first time that a woman uh saw like the the Huntington Park RoboCop she like she saw this RoboCop and she saw that there was a fight happening so she like ran over to the RoboCop to press this emergency alert button so that it would send policemen to break up this fight that was happening in the park and all the RoboCop said to her was step out of the way please keep the park clean and it did not call the cops
3: <laughs> that is hilarious you know amy um i'm going to i'm going to show you something um that I'm gonna hope that everyone um, watches at home because uh, what I think we can maybe do here is I'm gonna show you something uh, that Fatal Farm made about Robocop. I don't know if you've seen this yet Um, and I'll just have your reaction, let people know whether or not they should watch this. And that is
2: well. I, I think I I really understand Verhoeven's point that it, the violence has to go on a long time to be
3: funny. Uh, that sequence <laughs> it was a it is it's so graphic in I don't even know how to describe it. I will say this: it's worth watching. It's not for the faint of heart. And uh, and if you and look, uh, if you if you don't want to see. Uh, a lot of penises on screen. You should not be watching that scene, but it is. There is something like, uh, well, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> I'd like use your own judgment and watch it uh, if if you if you dare. Fatal Farm. Just type in Fatal Farm Robocop, and you can enjoy the entire uh, deleted scene from the film where he takes down all the rapists in Detroit.
2: I mean, I, I will say there is something in that in there that's extra super duper accurate, which is at the end when Robocop is trying to get into the car and he can't. That actually was a thing that happened with the RoboCop suit. Is like The RoboCop suit actually is is no better than ED-209. Neither Peter Weller in the RoboCop suit or the ED-209 was capable of going downstairs in the costume. And he couldn't sit down in cars. And he can't go up. So if you watch the movie closely, you'll notice RoboCop does not quite ever really go upstairs. And every single time that Peter Weller is sitting behind the wheel of a car in his RoboCop suit, he is not wearing pants.
3: Oh, wow. I love it. All right. Well, Amy... What a big discussion, so much here, so much on the table. As we wrap up this conversation, the next film that we'll be doing is Starship Troopers. I know we talked about that, but before we do that, we're gonna take a little detour and we're gonna have uh, Pat Oswald on the show with Meredith Salinger. They have a brand new podcast out. uh, And we're gonna talk to them about their favorite movies, their top three. So next week, uh, you'll get a little break between your Verhovens, but uh, when we're back again, we'll be talking about Starship Troopers. Take a listen to the trailer. worth fighting for but in the future the greatest threat to our survival will not be man at all hey,
0: what's going on? it's war! we're going to war!
1: Now, the youth of tomorrow must travel across the stars to defend our world.
3: We are a generation commanded by fate to defend humankind.
1: Everyone
0: fights. No one quits. We are going in with first wave. You smash the entire area. You kill anything that has more than two legs. You get me? We get you, sir.
1: But they will face an enemy more devastating than any ever imagined.
0: All
3: right, so we'll see you next week on the show. If you like the show, please rate and review us. Uh, If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please follow us. Tell your friends about it. Uh, A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond. Uh, Also, our producers... Devin Bryant, Molly Reynolds, uh, our intern, Jacob Morton, and our amazing artist who creates every poster for our show, Kim Troxall. Woohoo! And if you want to buy any Unspooled merch, head to tpublic.com slash unspooled. See what we have there. Amy, anything else you want to tell people about?
2: Uh, well, if you're in LA and you're listening to this right when it comes out, uh, Saturday night, I'll be doing a Q&A of with accompanying the movie Harold and Maude at the Los Feliz 3. So cool. I love that. It's a movie
3: I just saw for the first time only a handful of years ago. And if you want to see me on tour, I will be on tour all summer. Just go to hdtgm.com. You can check out our virtual shows. You can check out our live shows. Like I said, we'll be in Detroit. Uh, maybe we'll have a RoboCop meetup. Uh, we will see you oh, next. Oh, oh, oh yeah. and
2: I will say, if you're by the Los Feliz 3 the next day, my boyfriend is going to be introducing a movie that we covered here on the show where he's going to be talking about who's afraid of Virginia wolf in the afternoon so if you want to come see a matinee of that at the egyptian that's the next one that
3: is a perfect one to see all right so we'll see you next time on unspooled bye for now